0: Welcome to the PTA Elevation Podcast, where we help physical therapist assistant students pass the NPTE on the first try without wasting time or money. To learn more about the services we offer, find us on Facebook by searching PTA Board Study Group, or fill out the form linked in the description. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's podcast. What's up, guys? So today we're going to talk about Huntington's disease. Remember, when we have problems with the basal ganglia, it's either Huntington's disease or Parkinson's disease. So let's kind of get into it so we can kind of understand exactly what's going on. This is one of those neurological conditions that probably ends up showing up on the boards because there's an interesting way that it presents. So anatomy, as I said before, basal ganglia is the big thing going on. It's mainly affecting when it comes to Huntington's disease, the striatum part of the basal ganglia, which is of the caudate nucleus, which is a little bit higher in the brain and the putamen, which is a big chunk of the basal ganglia. So understanding that that's kind of where it's happening, striatum um, for the NPTE, for PTAs, we really just kind of have to know it's atrophy of the basal ganglia and a little bit of the cerebral cortex, because remember we have those higher, remember the cerebral cortex, the function of that is your higher executive functioning and higher thought processes when that's affected. That's why we see dementia with this patient. So central nervous system problems, basal ganglia in the CNS, and also some parts of the cerebral cortex are being affected now. Just a quick thing before we hop onto the next thing I wanna point out, remember the function of the basal ganglia is to control voluntary movement. So that's why we're seeing all the, all over the place coreathitoid movements when it comes to um, Huntington's disease. So just wanna make sure I touched on that real quick. If you're confused about what parts of the brain do what, check out the um, neuroanatomy video on that. So etiology of this, as I said before, it's kind of unique and different than a lot of other things that we're going to see. It's an autosomal dominant inheritance. So remember with our Punnett squares, that means you only need one gene to be able to express it. And it's located on chromosome four. The gene's name is IT15. Less to know about that. Definitely kind of know that it's chromosome four. That's kind of helpful. Understanding understand the difference between this one's on chromosome four. Something like cystic fibrosis is on chromosome seven, and then something like, um, trisomy 21 down syndrome is on the 21st chromosome. So kind of knowing what chromosomes do and what. So that's kind of what's going on with this one. It's going to appear between the ages of 35 and 55. So individuals have usually reproduced, had children before they realize they have a defective gene, especially if it's a situation where like the, one of their parents like died young, maybe they were adopted or something like that. So they really don't know their family history. Um, so that's why we see that uh, people are passing this gene on to their children because they don't realize they have it until they're kind of most of the way through their childbearing years um and so that's why we're going to see so if it has a general onset of like 42 most people have decided to have children by then so that's why they don't see it happening so that's kind of what happens autosomal dominant inheritance so what does it look like so this is really sad um as said before it occurs with people between the age of 35 and 55 for onset so that's when you start seeing the symptoms and stuff so it seems comp- you're completely normal hitting all the milestones developing normally till you hit about 35 to 55 then you're like start having these problems so With Huntington's chorea, so this is what um, is also kind of referred to with Huntington's disease, it might not be called Huntington's disease, it might be called Huntington's chorea, but this is where we see that's caused by inhibition of the basal ganglia, which will cause motor dysfunction, as I said before, the basal ganglia is responsible for uh, voluntary motor control of the uh, skeletal muscles and stuff like that, so if it's inhibited, that means we don't have control we're just going kind of thing. And literally that's kind of what it looks like. They're just going sort of thing. So we'll see this thing. And this is one of those keywords, the chorea athetoid movements of the extremities. So chorea would be that large amplitude random movements. Then athetosis is a snake like writhing movement. So kind of understand if we're seeing like these large amplitude snakes going on, that would be characteristic of Huntington's. And so keywords to think about guys, because remember, it's all about the keywords. Um, so the patient might also like, cause it's an involuntary movement. So instead of like with Parkinson's, we have the pill rolling tremors and the resting tremors and everything like that. The patient just, they're literally going like this all the time kind of thing. Um, with Huntington's it's a lot more going on. So they're going to have like the grimacing, they'll, they'll bare their teeth and everything. They'll stick out their tongue and stuff like that. They will uh, raise their eyebrows. So they'll have all these random movements while they're doing all the snake-like movements. I'm going to try to link a video below so you guys can see. Um, But that's pretty much what's going on with this patient. Because of all this, remember, our muscles of speech are skeletal voluntary control muscles that will see that their speech is becoming a lot more difficult to understand. This is pretty scary when it comes to this patient um, because they can't express themselves. And as they lose their ability to speak and communicate, they're becoming more isolated. So there's a lot of other cognitive things going on with this patient. We'll see those dementia starting to happening. They'll start, because remember the cerebral cortex is also wasting away. So that's why we're seeing that. Remember dementia and Alzheimer's in general, um, Alzheimer's being a separate disease, dementia being a symptom of the disease. It would be just wasting away of the brain. The brain starts to shrink. We're seeing the same thing kind of happen with uh, Huntington's, but because it's not, it's Huntington's, that's like, that's what's going on because the defective chromosome, it's, even though it looks like Alzheimer's, it's because it's Huntington's with the actual pathology of what's going on with it. So we're seeing all those impairments as well with this patient. A lot of things going on. We'll see ataxia, difficulty with ambulation and transfers and stuff like that. They might be sitting in the chair and they're moving so much they fall off the chair and they can't control themselves with that. Um, unfortunately, and this is really sad in the final stages of this disease, the patient becomes become rigid and stuff like that. They'll need 24-7 care. They can't feed themselves, wash themselves, move themselves and stuff like that. It's, it's very, very tragic. And um, they're going to need 24-7 care. That's why patient caregiver education is so important in the early stages. So we know kind of what to expect going forward. So we can make the best decisions for the patient and the family, keep everyone comfortable. And unfortunately, the patient will pass away from this disease. This is a terminal diagnosis within 20, like 20 years of diagnosis. So usually 15, 20 years is the average after the onset of symptoms. So this is a very slow wasting away. I would not wish this on anybody Um, But we are going to be seeing patients that have this condition, and we're going to be working with them and their families, and we're going to see it on the boards. So we got to kind of know what's going on. So how are we treating it? Patient and caregiver education is the number one thing to think about. If the answer says patient and caregiver education, we want to look closely at that answer and make sure that that's a good answer. Um, Because when it comes to this, the families involved as well, because it could be their children are involved and their children might possibly possess the gene as well. They might want to know kind of what's going on. Some people want to know, some people don't want to know, um, but kind of educating them on like, let's say it's their mom, what's happening with mom, what's going on, what's it going to look like in the next couple of years? What kind of support is she going to need? um, What kind of caregiving is going to need? And because it's a long drawn out thing, it takes a huge toll on the family being a caregiver. It is very, very tough to be a caregiver, especially when somebody who's like your mom, that's always taking care of you, you have to take care of them now. It's really, really a lot on the people and making sure the patient and the caregiver are both educated and they're getting the proper support outside as well. That's kind of just a little treatment kind of thing, but the boards isn't going to really ask you about that, but big advocating mental health for caregiver and patient when they have a disease like this, um, the patient might be on various medications. So remember, we're always doing a med check before we treat our patient to make sure there's nothing that's going to be contraindicated or, um, things we have to look out for like syncope episodes or something like that with whatever medication they're on. So understanding they're going to be on dopamine as well, similar to how Parkinson's patients are on levodopa. Um, we're kind of making sure that the patient is um, being treated with the proper medications to help with their symptoms. And so the anticonvulsants and dopamine is going to decrease the coreathetoid movements and convulsions because it's trying to supplement what the basal ganglia doesn't have. Um, so That's kind of what's going on with that. Instead of like it being a dopamine problem, like in Parkinson's, that it's just not getting across the blood brain barrier, the um, actual basal ganglia itself is wasting away. So that's the big difference between these two. For us as physical therapists and physical therapist assistant peoples, um, we're going to focus on, and this is very important for any patient who's in a disease like ALS, MS, uh, Huntington's, Parkinson's, whatever disease they have that's going to be causing them to slowly become debilitated, we want to focus on maximizing the patient's current level of function. And so by saying this, I'm saying, if they can do it, we want to keep them doing it as long as possible until they need help. Then we're going to adapt it, give them adaptive assistive devices, all that stuff, whatnot. Um, Adapt, improvise and overcome kind of thing with this patient until they absolutely can't do it anymore. And then they need someone to do it for them. So we're trying to keep the patient as functional as possible for as long as possible. So we're going to, if we see this on the boards, we're picking the answer that's going to keep the patient as functional as possible for as long as possible, doing the thing themselves until they need help that's the big thing to think about with all of these. So strength and transfers is going to be another one. We're working on just general progressive strengthening and stuff like that, maintaining the level of strength that they have, working on transfers, keeping them as independent as possible with their transfers. Um, and then we're going to work on balance and ambulation. So let's just say, and not Andy. Um, so we're gonna work on balance and ambulation with this patient. We're trying to make sure, that um we're keeping them from falling over because we don't want them to have a fall it's really bad so we really don't want them to end up on the ground so we're trying to keep them as independent with their ambulation keeping their balance as uh, appropriate as possible working on dynamic balance static balance um reactive balance stuff like that um we're gonna work on postural control and functional mobility so postural control being like you know how we're kind of all over the place with that kind of working on patient having voluntary control as much as they can to keep them like in the seat and stuff, keep them from falling out of a chair, things of that nature. And we're working on functional mobility with this patient. So just as I said before, keeping the patient as functional for as long as possible. We're going to work on stretching and preventing contractures because this patient could be stuck in positions for a long period of time. Again, as they progress into those more rigid kind of uh, later stages of the diagnosis, we're going to work on keeping them as mobile as possible um, to prevent contractures and other problems when it comes to, because contractures can increase on um, the weight bearing and like the pressure points and stuff like that on a patient. So think of like if a patient has a knee flexure contracture, they're putting a lot of pressure on their heels and stuff so we just want to decrease contractures as much possible keep them with as much range of motion as possible and eventually the patient as i said before as they progress through the disease they're going to need adaptive equipment and family is going to make need to make decisions about end-of-life care because again this is a terminal diagnosis keep the patient as functional for as long as possible keep the patient as independent or adaptively improvised modified independent as long as possible um and then we're going to be able to talk to the patient the family about making sure they have the proper resources to make the best decisions for their loved one, um, as the disease progresses. So this is one of those conditions as it progresses, we're going to be hanging out with OT a lot, a lot SLPs too, because of the speech kind of thing, but we Huntington's OTPT, that's like a good marriage when it comes to that. Generally, we love our OTs. We, 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 we wouldn't be able to live without them. So keywords for this one Basal ganglia, as I mentioned before, this is one of the two things that should scream, oh, this is probably what's going on if it's a basal ganglia disorder. And then you got to look at the other things that are going on. So autosomal dominant on chromosome four. If you're seeing this, it's pretty much a shoe in for uh, Huntington's disease um, because there's not many things that will uh, be autosomal dominant because a lot of times when it presents in somebody, um, the parent would know about it because they would have it. So it's the kind of thing where it's like, they would know before they have children usually, or they might not be able to have children based on the debilitation of their disease or whatnot. Um, but this is one of those that we would see autosomal dominant for. So we got to, you know, that's a big screaming in the face, uh, movements, So anything like the snake, like writhing athetosis or the large amplitude uncontrolled movements, which is the um, That's um, screaming Huntington's disease as well. The onset between 35 and 55 years old, because we understand it's somebody who's probably already had children. If, the children are involved. Um, so seeing that that's something that's going to show up again, um, and then understanding that, uh, patient caregiver, family education, like that is like the big bread and butter of this disease. Like you want to, like, when it comes to treating this patient, everybody that's all hands on deck for this patient, families involved, everything, support system, we're making sure we're, all in with this and everybody's on the same page because our job is not just treating them it's educating the family think about how many times we have to sit down with patient even if they had surgery or something we explained to them what happened like the other day i explained to my patient why she's having pain here at the um uh, attachment point of one of her rotator cuff muscles after she had surgery i'm like well that's because they had to like re-anchor it back in she's like whoa i didn't even know which one was torn we have to educate our patients a lot. Um, and then terminal disease. So understanding this individual is going to eventually pass away and it's between 15 to 20 years after their diagnosis or clinical manifestation, symptoms onset, whatever the boards wants to use as a, as a explainer kind of thing. Um, so then we will see the patient will eventually deteriorate to the point where they do pass away. So sample question guys. A physical therapist assistant is treating a patient diagnosed with Huntington's disease. The patient is still able to transfer independently and ambulates with a slight ataxic gait, but is becoming worried about falling over. Patient lives with her child and her daughter-in-law. What is the most important intervention to complete with the patient at this time? 1. Work on balance training and transfers. Two, discuss with the patient and caregiver about fitting patient for an assisted device. Three, teach patient how to get up from the ground if they do fall or four, teach family member how to guard patient while they transfer. So I'll give you guys a second to think about that. All right guys, so the answer is discuss with the patient and caregiver about fitting patient for an assistive, assistive device. So, the reason why that is the answer is what's one of the most important intervention right now? Remember, what are our big things when we're choosing interventions for someone with a terminal disease? How could, patient caregiver education, big thing um making the patient as functional as possible as they can be for as long as possible and then maintaining patient's independence for as long as possible and choosing an appropriate intervention that isn't going to be like a progressive resistive exercise really we can do those but it's not really going to be progressing you know what i mean um so that is why the answer is teaching the patient about fitting them for an assisted assisted device so most important things yeah we would work on balance and transfers with this patient that's probably good um transfer is not as much because they're still transferring independently. That's the big keyword here. They can transfer independently. So we're less worried about transfers. The main problem, what are they complaining about? They got a slight ataxic gait. They're worried about falling over. Okay. Well, let's just make sure that they're not falling over. How can we make sure they're not falling over? Give them an assistive device because remember we can modify things because that'll help them keep as independent as possible. It's a lot easier for the patient to feel like they can get up themselves, walk over to the bathroom, go to the bathroom, And come back if they use a cane rather than feeling like they need to call out to somebody help me help walk me over that gives them so much more independence back to them so that's why an assistive device is essentially a key that the patient can unlock the world that they have so far. Um, So teaching patient how to get up from the ground if they do fall. This wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for this patient, but we want to keep them from being on the ground in the first place. So we could do this with this patient. um, But what we really want to do is make sure they don't fall in the first place. So this is more of like an afterthought kind of thing. Primary thing would be get them an assisted device so they can be independent. Teaching family member how to guard patient while they transfer. So I'm sure some of you guys might have thought that this was the right answer. The reason why it's not, the patient is independent with transfers. The biggest thing that the patient's complaining about right now is that they're worried about falling over while they're walking because they have an intact, a toxic gait. So that is why number two is the answer, discussing with patient and caregiver, because you wanna make sure the caregiver is on board with everything and knows what's going on because it's a whole all hands on deck kind of thing um, about fitting patient for an assisted device. Maybe later on, we're gonna need to teach the family member how to guard the patient while they transfer, but right now they're independent with that and they're okay. So we don't really need to do that right now because the question also asks in the stem of the question, it says, what is the most important intervention to complete with this patient at this time? So right now, what's the problem? They need their are fa- They're worried about falling over while they walk. Okay. Assisted device is going to help with that. Boom. We're good. Balance and tr- tr- transfers because it says transfers. I would shy away from that question because it says transfers are independent and then the teaching them how to fall, the, how to get up to the ground. Once they fall is kind of an afterthought. So what would I do first in this page with this patient? Teach them how to fit them for assisted device. We'll work on balance training, some transfers. If they do fall, maybe we'll work on that as well, but We don't really need to guard them yet when they're standing. So that might be a future thing. So again, just to recap, making sure the patient is as functional as possible for as long as possible and as independent as possible for as long as possible kind of thing. So I hope this was helpful in explaining things. Let me know if you have any questions and I will see y'all in the next one. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the PTA Elevation Podcast. We look forward to continually serving you as you embark on your journey towards becoming a licensed physical therapist assistant. We thank you for your continued support and we'll see you in the next episode.